So Max, we're back. We're back. Uh, I think like most of our best conversations, I'd like us to talk about a tweet. Okay, so um, tweets are interesting. And there was one recently that sort of caught our eye as we were preparing for this long episode, um, which was a tweet about, of all things, Seinfeld. And it's a little chart um, that explains sort of the spatial topography of the Seinfeld set. And it's this, it, what it's demonstrating is this sort of contradiction in the spatial design of the set. Jerry's hallway actually can't really quite exist because of the way, um, the way the set is designed. There's, it, it the way just the kitchen sticks the, out. Exactly. The kitchen sticks out. It's not physically possible. And so, you know, we were, we're going to talk a lot about space in this episode and the spatial design of, you know, uh, different eras of, of movie making and, and media making. And we thought it prudent to, to sort of laugh at this at the beginning because, um, it's it's just quite funny to say this this thing in the movie is not realistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this mediated this mediated uh, uh, experience isn't just like my my experience uh, at my desk before yeah. me, um, like it would be for Rene Descartes. <laughs> um, and and so it's hilarious. So it was a it was a Reddit thread, and then it was. Um, you know, then it was tweeted about under the heading Jerry's hallway can't exist. And it's got like 2.5 K likes. Right. And the, the diagram is Cartesian, right? <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. it's all about that X, Y, Z, uh, axis and grid. And it shows you these, these green lines that run contiguously right touching from from the hallway kind of basically passing through part of the space of the kitchen right it's showing you how it's impossible jerry's hallway can't exist and then what i thought was funny is somebody commented uh on that thread uh uh correcting what was being claimed no we see that angle in the show multiple times the hallway is straight with kramer and jerry's doors at the end the elevator is next to jerry's apartment and what i find so funny about this is like <laughs> i don't even care right like it it may be maybe it is reconcilable according to cartesian contiguous space but but we've missed the point here altogether right that mediated space whether it's televisual mediation or as we on this show like to talk about monetary mediation does crazy ghostly shit right like and <laughs> and is like multiple and overlapping and just does not behave according to um you know cartesian dictates i hate it when tv doesn't behave yeah so we are here mostly to not rag on bad tweets but to <laughs> talk about a television show um i think this is we're gonna call this another episode of modern movie theory yeah, um and we're here to sort of pick up a few threads from our marx was right episode 
Um, you heard it here first, by the way. Marks was right. Um, <laughs> and our Infinity War episode. It, exactly. Yeah. And in our Marx Was Right episode, we spent a lot of time thinking about what we are calling and, you know, picking up from a series of philosophical debates, a sort of apophatic method, right? A this, negative method. A right. negative method of, of illuminating that which is not immediately positively present. Um, and the sort of... In, as well as that, we're picking up on our engagement in Marvel's MCU, where we had a long episode about Avengers Infinity War, and some of the pop culture, media, political, historical stakes of that particular media form. Yeah, so what are we talking about today? I'm extremely excited. I've been wanting to talk about this Uh <laughs> Like in an official capacity for uh, several months now. Yeah, Scott will usually just call me and tell me uh, his findings about WandaVision, which have been, um, let's just say, abundant uh, <laughs> over the past few months. And so that's what we're here to talk about today. The Disney Plus series that's, ex you know, extending and moving beyond the Avengers series. Uh, it's officially... Phase four. What, Officially phase Whatever four. that means. Phase well, four of the MCU. It's the longing phase. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's the trauma phase. The trauma phase. Well, I guess phase. they're all the trauma phase. Yeah, well, it's the it's the reflexive trauma phase. More and more so. We'll, we'll get yeah, there. Um, so, so what is WandaVision? Let's so, catch people up. Oh, yeah. and just by the way, if you don't want spoilers, please just turn this off yeah. and, and come back another time happy to have you have you again but uh we're, we're not gonna hold back nope we're not gonna hold back and um just like mmt spoiled the monetary system um <laughs> we're gonna spoil the mcu for you uh probably in more ways than you could have imagined um yes. <laughs> it'll be ruined by the time we're done with it yeah so so i wanted to to ask you scott um because i think you've sort of spent more time watching rewatching WandaVision than I have. Um first of all, what is it? And secondly, perhaps why are we turning to it today? Okay, so I'm going to need some help because setting up this show uh just narratively is hard to do and it's hard to do without getting lost in the endless intersecting, intertwining backstories of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But so, okay, it stars two MCU heroes, uh, Wanda Maximoff, uh, who is played by Elizabeth Olsen, and the character Vision, who is actually a, a, a synthesoid, is not, not really a, a full human, but is more like a, a walking, feeling computer, uh, played by Paul Bettany. And where, so it, the, the show takes place after the events, I think it's like three weeks or something, after the events that occur in um, Avengers Infinity War, which we've talked about, and, and Endgame, right? And that's the moment when the eco-fascist hulking Thanos snaps his fingers and we call the event the snap or sometimes the blip and according to his wishes 
he has made half of the living creatures in the universe disappear because according to his zero-sum uh, ecology and political economy, uh, he, he wants to save, save creatures because the universe is finite. There's a finite amount of resources. We couldn't possibly intergalactically provide for all. So he gets rid of half of us in order to really, really care for the rest of us, right? So part of this, part of this story is that um, for a lot of reasons I don't want to go into, Vision has to sacrifice himself because he's got one of these infinity stones stuck in his skull. And he asks Wanda, uh, who you know, the two of them are, are a couple, they love each other. He asks Wanda to do the sacrificial act right um so like there's so much trauma coming into this show loss we think vision is dead essentially or mm -hmm. no longer functioning as, mm -hmm. as a synthesoid right so it's really startling when in the beginning of this show um first of all vision is alive weird and it's not explained second of all after the initial uh, Marvel, you know, logo, like animated logo at the top, the aspect ratio, basically the ratio between the vertical and horizontal axes of the screen shift from a standard widescreen anamorphic, you know, MCU aspect ratio to something much more boxy and something much more like we associate with, well, lots of things but most presciently for this this show mid-century television right the boxy mid-century television and it happens to be in black and white and they start acting and then we realize oh my goodness wanda and vision are inex inexplicably in a 1950s white family sitcom complete with a a live studio audience and a laugh track and wardrobe and set design and um, performance styles and the rhythms of jokes are totally out of the M out of the MCU. Like we've left it, we've left it behind in in a way that feel like when I first saw it, I was I was really pleasantly shocked <laughs> by by what was unfolding. Um, and then it turns out that a lot of this MCU show, this MCU streaming show, is about Wanda and Vision being, uh, I, I don't know how you say it, like enjoying or trapped in, <laughs> suffocated by uh, sitcoms of the past. And so the, the overall narrative arc of each show kind of plays out as episodic television with very um, sitcom-y uh, like problems that are usually about like silly misunderstandings, but like like all sitcoms, like are also processing major, you know, political ideological mores and tensions and contradictions along the way. But then, so then it, as it unfolds from episode to episode, you're you're traveling you're traveling through time. So the first, the first episode is the 1950s. We're, we're in a realm that reminds us of I Love Lucy, 
the Dick Van Dyke show, although that's a little bit later than the 50s, that's early 60s, but still that kind of tone. There's also this kind of creeping, for all the lightness of the show and the, the aesthetics and the tone of the, of the show, there's also this creeping darkness. Uh, and, and I think one of the ways that that creeping darkness gets expressed is through uh, a twilight zone kind of, um, you know, things aren't what they seem uh, aesthetic. Um, so then you move through the decades, you get into the 60s. Clearly, they're drawing from Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie and the Mary Tyler Moore show. 70s, Brady Bunch. 90s, it's, it's a little like fast and loose, like this Family Ties, which is an 80s show for the most part. There's Growing Pains, there's Full House. Um, then you get to episode six, and that's referencing shows like Malcolm in the Middle. Then you get to episode seven, uh, basically the 2010s. We get shows like Modern Family, The Office, Parks and Rec. That's when you start seeing like single camera uh, production and uh, confessionals right to the camera, right? Like like more recent um, uh, comedy, television comedy tends to do. And then we basically leave the sitcom world behind. And what's been happening along the way is not just a kind of romp through sitcom land and the history of, of uh, the American sitcom, but essentially, right, the, the, the traumas of the MCU, the traumas of the blip, and the traumas of not only Wanda, but certain other characters who are revealed to be outside of this sitcom space uh, begin to emerge. And we get to have a, a better sense of where this sitcom is taking place although I, I think we would argue that we never really do. <laughs> um, uh, and what ends up happening is the show becomes increasingly more and more MCU, right? More and more like everything we're used to. The sitcom aesthetics get stripped away and the kind of what we've called hyper-Newtonian um, uh, physics-obsessed uh, aesthetics driven by digital visual effects um, kind of take over. Wow, I'm really surprised I was be I was able to do that. Yeah, that was a, <laughs> a pretty great summary. And I, there's a few things that I want to highlight from it, too. First of all, just like you can probably hear it in Scott's voice, just how fun this show is, right? I mean, I think we, we need to take a second to really like say that. And it's fun precisely because of all of these stakes that are not just implicitly there or need to be really like teased out in with like a a, a needle and thread um but because it's it's actively playing around in this historical register right it's it's replaying and playing out a history through aesthetics through through a, a sort of memory of what we might call the the sort of origin of the Hollywood blockbuster um, in the sense that it's like a pre-origin, right? A, a what came before the sort of Marvel problematic um, that I think we can, we, we could point you backwards to our, our modern movie theory episode one uh, for, for more of a spelling out of it. But I do, th I do want to hover over 
a few of these sort of themes that you teased out. And I think the first one is, it, could I ask you, Scott, to explain what you mean by mid-century aesthetics? Yeah, that's tricky. So maybe I think what would be helpful is actually for us to review a little bit for newbies and just for, you know, even returning listeners, mm -hmm. just so we're all on the same page. What we mean by what we mean by MCU aesthetics and what mm. we mean by more broadly blockbuster aesthetics and what we're calling hyper Newtonian aesthetics. Mm. And I guess the way I would start, and it, it's not, it's a little tricky to get your wrap your your head around. But to start, I would say with the Hollywood blockbuster, starting with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Industrial Light and Magic in the mid to late 1970s, did is they created a new kind of uh, popular uh, aesthetic regime that did everything in its power to avoid forms that seem manifestly abstract. And by abstract, I mean uh, any kind of form that seems like it's bringing together elements that are not immediately contiguously related or, and also avoiding simulations of movement that aren't just about, you know, physical objects moving from here to there. Um, and this includes sound design and music as well, right? A sense of uh, the world being, even if it's fantastical, even if it's in a, you know, in the Star Wars expanded universe with all of its creatures and all of its sort of impossible, um, impossible spaces and things like that. Um, it's still all very Cartesian, as we were saying, and really Newtonian and in a, in a hyperbolic way. So it's really obsessed with extended uh, volumetric space and, um, and these really intensive physics, which we would argue suggests a kind of a real uh, anxiety uh, really about abstraction and about abstract forms because they're doing everything in their power to make, to make audiovisual experience be a physically immersive one uh, rather than something that is, you know, more like the Seinfeld tweet, right? Something mm -hmm. that's, and I think we would also say that media, whether it's motion picture media or auditory media or, or, or painting or, or money, always has a dimension of abstraction. It's always mediating, you know, elements at a distance or across distances and doing so in complicated and overlapping ways. And to deny the fact that media does this is a problem. And then with this, we also say that um, Hypertonian blockbusters and the, the MCU what they do is they give us an impression of the world, a feeling of the world, even if it's a fantastical world, an impression and feeling about the world that really all that matters at the end of the day is, is physics. The only kind of movement that there can be is one thing moving through space, right? And bumping into another, right? And 
for us who take MMT really seriously, um, we know that this is just not how money works, right? Mm -hmm. Taxes, taxes that are not physically taken from one group of people and then shot through pipes, <laughs> through contiguous space, and then, you know, deposited in the government coffers and then, you know, and they can be empty or full and then it, through spending, it goes somewhere else. That actually there's an analogy between uh, these hyper-Newtonian aesthetics as really finite and really intensely just materialist and the way we, under neoliberalism, imagine monetary relations and monetary mediation. So we, you know, we are interested in the MCU and blockbusters because they're like, I mean, they give so much meaning to so many people's lives, including our own, mm -hmm. right? But, but that doesn't mean we can't critique them. And um, so, so for us, we're, we're interested in, well, you know, it, it doesn't always happen the same way. It's not as we would call univocal, right? It's not always hyper-Newtonian in exactly the same way. I will say it's often pretty similar most of the time, <laughs> but that's why, right? That's why WandaVision is so interesting because through its, I would argue, complex nostalgic journey back, uh, and I would, I want to qualify that word nostalgia maybe in a bit, but through that complex journey back, it's opening itself up to previous forms of abstract motion picture uh, media forms, right? Um, that, you know, I, I would never say this is the revolution or, you know, yeah, let's just do this and then we can have Medicare for all. Like that's <laughs> right. I'm not saying that, but it is exciting and, and interesting to then figure out, well, why is it doing it? How is it doing it? And how how do these forms that are more abstract and open function? Let me just give a, an example. One of my favorite moments from early on is uh, in a very gendered stereotypical way that, that's being kind of winked and critiqued at the same time as it's being explored. Um, uh, Vision goes off to work in his suit and he puts his hat on and he's in the leaving uh through back through the 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 kitchen door and he turns back to Wanda and um blows a kiss I guess into his hand and then he tosses it kind of pretend through the air right and there's no kiss right there's <laughs> there's it's it's a it's, it's a performative you know symbolic act right but then there's I think it's uh, is it chimes? It might be a um, um, harp. I think it's a harp sound or something that kind of uh, comes in and it's what we call non-diegetic. It's like not supposed to belong to the the reality of the story world, but then it takes on this like quasi-diegetic feel, right? And it, it makes this kind of feel a certain abstract reality of this kiss traveling through the air and then like she catches it right and then the the um the score kind of picks up and swells from there so the the show is absolutely unafraid of embracing all kinds of abstract and playful relations and that's super interesting it it really is super interesting and i think one of the things I wanted to sort of drive home about, um, I, I, I loved your description there of the, and, and particularly the example of thinking about 
right? The way this analogy is functioning, right? Because I think some people maybe think that these sorts of cultural forms or media forms, right, can be talked about alongside political economy. And it's like, one shows how the other is functioning and these sort but I think there's something a little bit too passive about that. And, and it's important to say that when we're saying that the MCU's blockbuster aesthetics, which WandaVision is undermining in certain ways, um, are an analogy for the way money is imagined to operate according to a Cartesian or neoliberal spatialized material logics of moving bounded in space from here to there in a finite way and as a finite amount, it's not just that that's like, aha, that's what, that's what neoliberals, that's what neoliberal money is, right? It, it's, it's that the sort of consciousness of our, our era, right, of this neoliberal era that we've grown up in and that, that, you know, we're so familiar with is one that is being given voice to in this, in these forms, but not just given voice to, but actively reinforced in simple, symptomatic ways. And so it's not just that one reflects the other, it's that they're operating with one another as a sort of totality of analogies for a sort of political aesthetic consciousness of what it feels like to to not just live within but participate in at multiple levels of the administrative legal political economic structure of the historical era of neoliberalism. And so these guiding logics are not located in one place and then reflected in another, but the MCU became and was an active way of reckoning with and producing neoliberalism at the level of our sensory field. Um, And so this sort of, that's what, is at stake in thinking about the way WandaVision is undermining neoliberal aesthetics because, and and it's important to say, right, the undermining of neoliberalism is something that we see in multiple ways right now in our current historical moment through the undermining of what people believe money to be. Right. And so there's this complicated historical movement and shift that we are we are looking at, seeing, interpreting and have been have been since sort of before, like when COVID was was beginning, we sort of discussed Scott and I the way that this might affect aesthetics and and we don't want to be determinist in any on any side of the coin but a part of this i think is looking at the way this sort of kiss flying through the air but not flying through the air right not flying through space but being propelled by the off screen by the out of view and and us being witness to it is a sort of allegory for 
a world in which there is maybe a, an alternative to the bounded material view of money and of of, of relationships that must be contingent upon the exchange of, of, of one thing bumping into another or touching another thing. And so those historical stakes really uh, come together. And I'm, I'm trying not to say words like congeal and, and metaphorize a, a contact, yeah. but, but they, there's this sort of conjuncture here that we want to, we want to dig into in, in real detail in order to, to historicize this moment of potential undermining in a political imagination and a economic imagination that is perhaps newly contestable in ways that we can't quite imagine or understand. Yeah. And I think the show is both consciously and unconsciously groping around, Mm -hmm. you know, I, uh, I think it is, um it doesn't even know right <laughs> and we don't know either but but there but something is being unsettled i do want to um make sure we're being clear here we're not suggesting that all of neoliberal aesthetics across every medium or art form <laughs> is hyper newtonian right um and actually there's plenty of abstract aesthetics out there right um were concerned specifically with the blockbuster form, which of course has spilled over into AAA video games and and commercials and you know all kind and TV, right? All kinds of places and has been for for decades. Um, so it's a what Frederick Jameson would call a, a cultural dominant, right? So it matters. It's not just the fact that there is an opening on to a really playful opening up. Uh, into these abstract forms. Um, it's the fact that this is phase four, this is launching phase four of MCU. And while there has been Marvel shows in the past, there, there, it feels like a kind of, it, it's sort of also announcing Marvel's arrival during the streaming wars, right? So like this is in the heart of the beast, right? This is the heart of, of you know, Disney, Marvel, corporate behemoth, right? And that's why I find it so interesting, right? It's not just the mere fact that it was made, right? It's it's that it was made in, in, at this particular node, as you would put it, in the cultural production process and in at this moment in history. Exactly. And it, yeah, it's interesting, you know, we've we've said thinking about right avengers endgame and we said this in the last um, modern movie theory episode but thinking about endgame as a as an end of sorts and and an ending that is an ambivalent one filled with loss and right tony stark dies um and and captain america goes back to, to the mid-century moment um which you know we're gonna probably bracket captain america for further conversations but um, thinking about this renewal or this new moment of, of streaming, of COVID, um, it, it is an important break, right? It's an important break at, in, at the level of the industrial apparatus of cultural production, 
right? And distribution. And so to be like, you know, a, a historical materialist about it, right? There's <laughs> there's a there's an important break here at the level of production. And what we want to suggest is that that is not just at the level of production, right? It's also at the level of its aesthetic form and and that you know to be a, the superstructure podcast right it's not one or the other right it's it's both all the time and these binaries are not sufficient for understanding and so i think to a large extent we've set up the historical political stakes and and i liked your example of the kiss it's a really fun one and you know there are more we could we could there's talk so about. many more there's so many more i mean i think it, it's worth potentially like going through a, a sort of short list of them that we have here but um so in the in the at in the earlier episodes right the scott mentioned the the sort of black and white um sort of aesthetics but they they actually you know retrofitted old lenses to fit with this sort of contemporary digital video rig um as as scott also mentioned the aspect ratios are in flux and they are changing according to the different historical periods and different sort of influences in which these sitcoms are um taking place and being drawn from as as well as period specific props um and there's there's this sort of sense that the world is up for grabs right and it's not just it's not just up for grabs in a in in a way that a normal mcu uh movie or or series would be up for grabs in the sense that it's like what's gonna happen is everyone gonna die or are we gonna be safe who's gonna get all the right. power exactly who's gonna get all the power no the the world is more fundamentally up for grabs in wandavision there's something really unmooring and destabilizing about and about sort of not really being able to know what is real what exists and what isn't real and what doesn't exist in the and what's possible right yeah, and, and being what's surprised possible. by that that creativity so here another example um a plate uh so in a very bewitched kind of way uh wanda is like cleaning and also a very gendered way uh, she's a housewife cleaning um plates dishes and they're kind of hovering in midair and um, and then tries to put one away and then Vision walks in and then it uh, the, the plate cracks on his head. Uh, and then there's some uh, joking that's go that, that happens. I'm trying to remember, do you remember what he said? Like my husband and his unbreakable head. <laughs> and, and that really sets up the, the, the kind of double or triple speak of the dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. so, so on the one hand, it's a joke that feels like it's straight out of I Love Lucy or what, right, a, a 50 sitcom. At the same time, we know that Vision's head gets destroyed, right? right. And he does not have an unbreakable <laughs> head, right? Um, and this, I think, also signals, like, there's a kind of magical indestructibility, even with indestructibility, mm -hmm. in these older abstract aesthetics because of abstraction. Mm -hmm. 
Whereas the MCU contemporary neoliberal zero sum hellscape is like, you know, it's, it's a, as I've called elsewhere, a spectacle of disintegration. Yeah. Anyway, then she's basically like, no worries, we can fix it. Right. And so she does her little, little spell or whatever. And it's like a twinkle, twinkle sound on the, on the soundtrack. And then they, they run the they run in, th in this case the video backwards right and the the plate reassembles so it's not the way that something in the marvel universe will come back together which we also get in this show right so yeah. like when um M monica rambo the african-american um super budding superhero in this show comes back from the blip, we get a very traditional coagulation, a very traditional kind of, um, you know, materialization of her presence, right? This is not how that plate moment works, right? The plate is running, running the video backwards in a way that's very reminiscent of like super early cinema. One of the, um, you know, the, the pioneers of cinema were, were this, uh, these brothers, uh, the Lumiere brothers in, in, uh, in France, in Lyon, uh, in the late 19th century. And they developed this camera and uh, it was also a projection system. And when they first started showing their very, uh, their, their very pretty straightforward, very short, um, uh, films, films like a train arriving at a station or a baby eating breakfast, um, often what they would do is they would run it forward and then they would crank it backwards, right? And then like it, the the medium does weird abstract things, right? That's very, very different. That is so much a, a part of the, the medium and the medium speaking in a surreal ways rather than it functioning as pure Cartesian, Newtonian, um, uh ways basically right so this is like hearkening back to early cinema i mean one of <laughs> it's a funny title but like one of the early <laughs> one of the early cinema films was called a demolition of a wall <laughs> right <laughs> and they people just marveled at this demolition of the wall like wow we can watch it over and over again this kind of contingent moment but then even more excitingly they would run demolition of a wall backwards and you see all the debris and stuff like coming back together, but like in an uncanny way, not in the way that, you know, Monica comes back from the blip. Right. Right. And so there's a few of this sort of themes that I, I want to highlight about this too, because I think, you know, there are other examples too, uh, where Wanda, you know, where there's mistakes made, but, you know, it can be fixed. It can all, everything can be fixed, right? All, in post. You know, in, yeah. in post or on the fly with magic, you know, in post. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and elsewhere at another time. Exactly, right. But but, at the, but all at once. Exactly. Elsewhere at another time, but still necessarily present in that moment. And, and what, there's this sort of general sense, which for uh, an MCU production is quite odd, of a few things one second chances right that's oh yeah that's a really interesting you know i mean in, in a way the whole show is sort of a second chance right and reckoning with what that might mean for wanda to have a second chance to be with vision um but also down to the sort of mistakes right like dropping plates or 
messing up dinner, right? And in this situation where the boss and there was this miscommunication and we don't know who's going to make dinner, a very classic, again, patriarchal um, sort of sitcom mishap, right? Of of a miscommunication Mm -hmm. that produces this. But, But in the end, dinner is you know dare one say snap fingers dinner's created right yeah yeah it's Um, a different kind of snap it's a different kind of snap and and so there's this general sense of like a cushion right it's 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 if we're gonna put it in contrast with the mcu where everything is hyper contingent and the the stakes are just hyper dire all the time, right? And physically hard, and physically right? very d- d- difficult in that sense. And then physically in the sense of things come together and they shatter into a million pieces. Yeah. And and putting them back together isn't it's not easy. It demands sacrifice, right? The the Avengers have to sacrifice their lives and their families and their selves to to have a chance of recomposing this, yeah. what has been, you know, turned into ash. And, and so, but the, this is all unwound to, to keep with your re- rewinding yeah, metaphor, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? In WandaVision, by going back in time, aesthetically, and in a world of sitcoms, to uh, a different sort of cultural mode where the ability to repair to to remediate and and i mean and you know i mean that in all the the sort of vibrating ways in which remediation and mediation are 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 acting this is not something that in this early world is difficult right it's 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 playful it's 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 joyous, you know, and it's a part of the joy of witnessing and watching the the show. And it, and it also feels part of the joy of the world of the show. Right. And, and now it's a, it's important to say that this world is set up in a particular way to fail in a particular way. And I think we should get yeah. into that, but we, I think it's important to highlight and hover on that sort of, moment of joy and playful creation and abstraction when it's in its full realization in the show as a as a way of recuperating or recovering uh, a, a sort of abstract mediation that has fallen away right and and fallen away along the course of history with the rise of the marvel blockbuster um and you know and and the the larger hollywood blockbuster as well and so perhaps now scott we can move into some of the the shape of this sort of loss trajectory and how how it's operating yeah so um i i want to say just to just to extend a little bit about what you were saying um this is not contrary to some critics (laughs) um this is not anything like a straightforward nostalgia at all. Mm-hmm. So when, and, and, you know, shows are complicated things. They're made by multiple, multiple people and they can have multiple meanings and tensions coursing through them. And, and, uh, you know, they can be all kinds of different levels of conscious and unconscious and, you know, um, but I will say that, you know, 
this show, in fact, is I think wary of nostalgia, mm -hmm. right? And that gets, that's really woven into the main through line, which is Wanda's trauma, right? So what we start to learn over the course of this show, and it's not the only through line, there are so many through lines as often as the case in MCU, but what we start to learn is that, uh, well, we're reminded <laughs> that Wanda is a traumatic mess, right? She, we know, and we're reminded that she lost her parents uh, growing up in Eastern Europe uh, in a fictitious Eastern European country called, is it Sokovia yeah, or something Sokovia. like that? And um, not only that, but she lost her parents to um the the stark uh, uh, the tony stark military industrial american empire complex right i mean a, a stark bomb is what is responsible for for the death of her her family or her her parents right um she uh she was she then kind of comes into the mcu as a villain who's working for the like eternally more Nazi than Nazi organization Hydra, and then is gaining some powers through that, and then um, then eventually is becomes an Avenger and gets you know hooked up with Vision, um, and then loses Vision, right? And and then and not and her trauma there is also is also kind of just one emblematic articulation of a much broader trauma, right? She so also just she also loses her brother in uh, her twin right. brother in the Avengers films. Right, Pietro, her brother, yeah. right? So she just like, she is a mess, mm -hmm. right? It's loss after loss after loss after loss. And what we learn eventually, uh, what's hinted at and then is eventually fully revealed is that this is, this, this sitcom world is a giant throbbing symptom or what, you know, uh, Freud would call a, a compromise formation or a reaction formation. And that basically she has taken over this relatively dilapidated, used to be middle-class town, now clearly suffering from neoliberal neglect. She has taken over not just the town uh, and a house in the town, but uh, the people who lived there and essentially in a very MCU way submitted them to her will. Although I think that that gets ambiguous in ways that outstrip MCU, um, the usual way that MCU um, deals with the will. And um, we start to see it, on the one hand, she's maniacal, right? And she, violence that, I mean, some fans are still pissed off about and they're very, they're very upset that she gets left off the hook too easily, mm -hmm. right? So um, uh, at the end, so she's she's violently controlling this world. She's become like a sitcom wife mommy uh, to the nth degree, to a kind of fascistic degree in a way you could say like, you know, she's very typically in an MCU way, you know, trying to care for herself and her loved ones and, and the world and it, it whoops, I slipped into fascism. I mean, this is like <laughs> constant in the MCU. And so we start to see the whole sitcom world as this, 
as this symptom of at once extreme trauma and a reaction formation that's actually destroying herself and destroying the world around her. Um, and I guess one of the things I first said to you when we, when we started watching this was, this is Marvel uh, <laughs> apologizing for the, how they ended um, Endgame, right? Mm -hmm. Which was this, as I think we pointed out in our conversation, this really sappy kind of straightforward nostalgia, right? Mm -hmm. Like back to World War II time, you know, the alternative reality where Captain America and his his partner get to be together and dance the night away and be white and <laughs> <laughs> and cis and, and hetero and and um and yay, isn't this better, right? Um and it seems like it seemed to me that this show is saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> like going back and going back and, and like taking on the forms of whiteness and heteronormativity um, isn't that easy, right? And, and, and it's kind of whack, right? So making, making something like a nostalgic media journey in WandaVision seems to be, whether it's conscious or not, a way of, for the MCU and for our popular culture to say, yeah, 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 <laughs> like <laughs> it's not, it's not just that like it was better back when, you know, the white man Captain America could, could have his lover and, um, and everything was fine. Right. I mean, to, to just you know drive this point home, right? We we've had David Freund on Money on the Left, right, and whose book The Color of Property sort of takes us through how the violence of the creation of the mid-century suburb, which is what Wanda's sort of projection is, um, is, is right based on this, you know, not only violence, but it's actively constructing whiteness in America in this era in a very particular way that is excluding, uh, you know, black people and then people of color of all kinds, right? And so, yeah. and so the, you know, not just a straightforward nostalgia. That's really important to say because I think that's the sort of motor where then we can come back around on the other side and think about the way the nostalgia in not being straightforward has some harbors some sort of potential um, for thinking mediation in a more inclusive way uh, and right and thinking monetary mediation and care in a more inclusive way that can't be reduced to the violences that WandaVision is allegorizing in the care in which it's hearkening back to. Yeah, and it is so complicated, um, both kind of at the macro level of the whole show, but also beat to beat and aesthetic choice by aesthetic choice. Um, I will say that um, we also then have to come back to you know, the, what you were just pointing out was possibilities, yeah. right? Like redemptive possibilities in this complicated, critical, fraught nostalgia. But then we also have to come back to limits, yeah. like what, what those limits are. Um, and I guess, you know, well, before I forget, I just want <clears throat> to kind of follow up on what you were saying about, you know, essentially like David Freund's work, right? And, uh, you know, FHA loans mm -hmm. were created right mm -hmm. along with all kinds of financial instruments that created the american the white 
redlined American suburb. And one could say that the, the familial sitcom, right? And there's lots of sitcoms, but they went for family, like couples and then family sitcoms mm -hmm. and white ones, mm -hmm. right? There's no Jefferson's references here. There's, there's, you know, there's no soul train shows, you know, it's, it's white, white heteronormative sitcoms, families. And um, what, what we could say, what this show does, I think, you know, in its own way reveal is that, you know, the, that family sitcom was part of redlining, mm -hmm. right? It realized redlining, right? And it's, it's crazy to, to have that thought in mind when you watch the very first moment of WandaVision and um, the theme song, the opening, you know, the opening 1950s, um, you know, sequence for the show and it, they're in a car and they're, you know, they've, they're just married. Uh, and the, the lyrics to the song is like, they got, they're getting away from the city and moving to the suburbs to buy a house to make a life for themselves, right? What is that? That's white flight, yep. right? <laughs> That's straight up white yep. flight. And given the fact, given how, you know, uh, I think self-consciously woke a lot of this production is, you can't, that's not just an accident, right? right? Like that's an acknowledgement that, that sitcoms were part of redlining and that there's a kind of violence here. And I think, you know, I don't think any of the, the film, the showmakers would put it in exactly this way, but I, I do think in addition to this being just narratively about, you know, Wanda's trauma and the, and the collective trauma of Thanos and the blip and all that, I also think this show is about the trauma the trauma of redlining, the trauma of white patriarchal provisioning that made abundance through the magic of FHA loans and sitcoms for a very particular, con to construct a very particular kind of racial gendered sexual formation. Mm -hmm. and, and, and there's something critical there. I mean, even if it didn't mean to exactly in those terms, I think that's something to affirm about the show. It, in completely, and I think also it um, as if there, if you had any wonder if that was the direction that Marvel was going to go, and I, I don't necessarily want to talk about uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier, but Falcon and Winter Soldier, I think, drives that home, right? Just the, how critical and woke this new phase um, of Marvel is, and and is going to continue to be i i, I would guess if, if i had absolutely to guess. so and falcon and winter soldier was actually in the production pipeline for earlier yeah both both wandavision and falcon and winter soldier got derailed by the pandemic because they were midway through shooting and it just so happened that wandavision was finished first through mm -hmm. post-production and so they released it first and um and the magic of money mediation and coordinated production amidst a pandemic allowed it to come out right and and to 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 be streamed into our homes at a time where we can't go to the movies right and i think these there are all these moving parts and so 
the the memory of the white flight the construction of the white red line suburb as the sitcom and the sitcom as those things is then right it's important to say too then that this construction was constructed to fail not just as in WandaVision, right? But if we think historically about the sort of mid-century consensus, you know, to use this sort of generic term, the sort of provisioning of whiteness, the the inequality, neoclassical Keynesianism, right? The neoclassical Keynesian consensus, the provisioning of whiteness, the the complete um, abandonment, right? And and I wouldn't perhaps say complete, but the active abandonment of citizens and and people of all kinds, right? Um, And and, and of all walks of life who were not white. Um, This is built to fail, right? And it's built to fail in the show, but it's also built to fail in the history of America, I I think, on our reading. And and that's the, the sort of trajectory of that failure is part and parcel of the way that this history and the aesthetic sort of conjunction of these histories in WandaVision really produce a lot of tensions that are that are fascinating for thinking about our present moment and and dealing with our traumas and dealing with our loss and thinking about how we want to be critical of modes of aesthetic monetary mediation that are austere and that are exclusive while holding some sort of potential even dare we say longing for certain forms of abundance amidst that exclusion that can be repurposed today and it's important to to hold those political desires in in a productive and generative tension right because there's surplus to be found in in that sort of method of you know dare we take it back to positing the analogies and sort of thinking negatively or apophatically from their limits to something greater to something more that that we can that we can imagine and that we can then activate ourselves to to, to produce and provision as, as a, you know, whether you want to say as a society or as a, as a, as a planet or however we want to define this sort of universalist vision of ourselves. Right. Which is not to say we want a Disney corporation, you know, running everything. Precisely not. Um, exactly. Right. Right. Um, so I want to, we got to talk about the bad stuff. Yes. Like the, like the real limits. Um uh, and we'll, I think we'll go back and forth, but um, so here's the problem. And this is when, I mean, I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming, but because it's MCU, but when it came, it, it, it broke my, my little heart uh, that basically all of this abstraction that has been so playful and critical and just delightful and like campy and queer and just like, so fun all has to be narratively but also in a more uh, a more expansive way aesthetically framed as 
being like little tricks that occur within a hyper Newtonian universe. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, I mean, they really went out of their way to explain this. Right. So how, how does this work in the show? Well, we're told that, you know, Wanda with all of her pain and her trauma uh, and her power uh, has used her, her energy, right. This like, hyper potent, very MCU energy, right? In a symptomatic way to um, gather and alter cosmic background radiation, which is essentially like the, the residue energy left over from the big bang. So gold. <laughs> <laughs> so gold, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's 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 vibrating gold, right? She's she's amassed it, right, around this this sad neoliberal small town, and um has then been able to at all of these registers of like you know people's minds and their bodies and you know the construction of houses and pools at community centers, like, you know, um, production design, like she's, she's able to manipulate this cosmic background radiation so that she can produce, she can be a showrunner, right? Like Jack Schaefer, the, the, um, the woman who's responsible for, for creating this show. Um, so it's very meta in that way, but it's all like hyper Newtonian physicalist. And then she, she starts broadcasting the television uh, signal sort of all predicated on that background radiation, right? So it's all hyper-physicalized. And, and with that, her feelings and her trauma are hyper-physicalized. And then by the time you get to the very last, you know, mega battle, um, uh, suddenly everything is just, just, devolved or or for for mcu fans you know they, they they've returned home right which is a finite material universe um where you know you need energy and power and someone's sucking it away from you and you're gonna suck it back away from them and yada 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 now that is super problematic it's super neoliberal and so there is a false story here that while has critical redemptive potential as max has been talking about at the same time it's also a kind of physical necessity like it makes the fall into neoliberalism into a kind of you know a necessary law right mm -hmm. a law of motion a law as a marxist would right a law of motion and a part of the forces of the universe right and the, right it, yeah right and uh, taking us back to the infinity stones yeah. and all that yeah right um, I, I wanna I wanna interject real quick. Another important way we can think about the way Wanda has constructed this sort of mid-century haven of a space is it's a state of exception, right? So if yeah. if the entire it's a sovereign land. Exactly. It's a sovereign state of exception. If the entirety of the universe is predicated on a sort of atomized and i mean that literally atomized physicalist newtonian sort of imminence right and this is an important that excludes that excludes yeah. that's necessarily materially exclusive and bounded 
um, then what Wanda has created is a sovereign state of exception with her power by which a select few exclusively and a very select few in this case pretty much just wanda vision and her her children which we're going to talk more we about have to talk yeah about, we have yeah. to talk about the children <laughs> um are able to live this cushy you know soft mid-century playful loving life and so the logic is that's based on the power that wanda has right within her and of course this is a, a quite like it, it allegorizes this sense that the mid-century moment and mid-century, the provisioning of mid-century whiteness and the abundance associated with that exclusive project is predicated on the U.S.'s victory and the Allied victory in World War II. And just the utter power that the U.S. had in this moment um, allowed them to mobilize resources in ways that could be abundant for a select few um, and this is the logic, but as an exception that was built to fail because you know what? The laws of capitalism and of the universe and of and of motion and the way capital circulates, it's always going to grind down that surplus back to zero, back to the null point on the Cartesian map. And so that's that's what is being allegorized in this space, which I think it's important to also say is called a hex. Right. So we're adding this, right. This hex has these, this magical, this witch like property. And so I'm going to hand it over to Scott to, to dive more in. Okay. So I want to first just say that, that, so there's a kind of uh, underlying fantasy here about that. It's about the built, built to fail, right. That mid-century whiteness was abundant in its exclusionary way, right? And I, I think the one way of putting this fantasy, which I think is a, a widely held one, is, you know, well, you know, the U.S. government, for a variety of reasons, was able to attract enough finite tax dollars, you know, cosmic background tax dollar radiation, <laughs> and but, but eventually, right, like, it's going to dissipate. And um, and you know what? It was kind of violent and hierarchical and exclusionary in the first place. So that kind of just needed to happen. It was inflationary. Yeah, it was inflationary. Right? Stag right. We had stagflation uh, and the show plays out the stagflationary component of this sort of state of white playful exception, um, right? An abstract mediation that has to fall apart. It has to. It has to fall apart. It does. And I mean, they play this at so many different levels and and they also talk about it in interviews and things like that too. Um, one of the things I became, <laughs> of the million things I became obsessed with with this show is um, uh, the those opening theme songs, which are like, have been newly, newly written, I mean, you know, from scratch uh, to kind of mimic the sounds and the melodies and the themes of each era, right? So we talked about the sort of white flight <laughs> one from the beginning. Um, uh, but uh, you know, there's there's one that is from the '80s, and it mostly resembles um, Family Ties. And I started going back and listening to Family Ties and a bunch of like '80s theme songs, and it's like it's so neoliberal. Like it it there, <laughs> it's always about like you know, I think 
Family Ties is like, what would we do, baby, without us? And it's all contracted around that family. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but there's other ones too. I'm trying to remember some of the ones I I I, I drag you know brought back from from my own childhood. But like, it really is like, oh my god, the family's going to be torn apart, right? And and actually, the, so the the WandaVision '80s theme song is all about forces tearing us apart. And then there's a, a pun, like a double entendre, which is like, this is MCU. So like literally forces yeah. are, yeah, are gonna tear us apart. Beams of know? energy, and, light, yeah, power. Yeah, right. Um, so it's, yeah, it's super self-conscious about how it's doing so. But you, so you brought up the hex, yeah. right? So there are, there's so much complicated stuff going on in this show that, um that is we could say feminist taking on feminist kinds of questions and histories and and tropes and problematics um both political social but also cultural and aesthetic um uh and also queer right and then we also are going to want to talk about race but we'll maybe we'll hold back on that so um right this is a show about about witches and mm-hmm. um there is, you know, a long, long history of patriarchal persecution of witches in the West, um, you know, starting in the in early modernity, right, by uh, by a, uh, an unjust, paranoid, you know, <laughs> patriarchal order, right, that um, sought to control and exclude women and various kinds of social practices or medicinal practices or midwife practices that didn't fall within the the certain patriarchal regime at the moment right um i mean the show um overtly cites right the the salem witch trials Mm -hmm. um so wanda here is going from becoming wanda who is i guess the the only avenger who didn't like have a nickname like iron man or Mm -hmm. something right but so in the comics which i am not an expert at but in the comics right she becomes scarlet witch and this is in part the story of her coming to see herself and emerge as scarlet witch and you know she has a, a special costume by the end and she's got the name scarlet witch right um so her trauma is routed through this becoming a witch uh, narrative, which gets to the trauma of patriarchal Western modernity, mm-hmm. right? It's an even bigger trauma, mm-hmm. right? And and then, um, uh, you know, at a certain point, the the kind of the whatever you want, the use of force or the magic or what, however we want to put it, depending on who's talking, right, gets characterized as a hex, right? Like a like a spell. Right. Um, and so it turns out, right, that this this town in New Jersey, that's also this giant sitcom set and a studio backlot is actually this big cosmic background radiation energy field that you can't penetrate, you can't get out of. And that that is called the hex. Right. It's like a witch's spell. And, you know, I don't, there was like a, a, I think a New York Times article that was critiquing the show for, for being kind of stereotypically patriarchal. But I think that the show is, not that you can't critique it, but I just think the show is way more self-conscious than that. I think it's very aware of the patriarchal dimensions of, of uh, the persecution of witches in the past, both actual and in media. And it's aware of 
you know, witches and especially like diva witches with their alternative powers as being some kind, even if it's just like a white feminism sometimes, right? But but as a long kind of uh, like this ongoing like reservoir of critical critical imaginary, right? Within and against the patriarchal order, right? And so I can't believe we've gone this long without talking about Catherine Hahn's character. Um, One of my favorites. Who starts as, yeah. I mean, I don't even have, like, <laughs> she, she is so good. Yeah. It's, it, there's I, no words. So she starts out playing the nosy neighbor in the very first episode. And it's so, like, it's, you know, in the 1950s show, it, everything is so patriarchal. They do these like fake commercials <laughs> in the middle of these shows. And like the first commercial is for a toaster made by the Stark Company. So a little bit of trauma there, but the commercial um, has a man mansplaining to you, the viewer, uh, and, and, and asking, uh, <laughs> is he tired of you burning his toast, right? <laughs> like. <laughs> It's interpolating the housewife, right? And it's all about the man as the king of the castle. And we're supposed to laugh at this, right? In a critical way that's critical of past patriarchy, right? Um, and so, 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 um, the Catherine Hahn uh, character, right, is her, her name in the show, in the show within the show is Agnes, mm -hmm. the nosy neighbor, right? Who's hypersexed. I think that's important too, right? Um, and she's always talking about this turns out to be fictitious husband who's a schlub and never remembers anniversaries and she's you know super if... horny <laughs> no she's super yeah, yeah, horny she's super he's horny. not yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah she's super horny right so an unwieldy feminine sexuality right um she's always talking about like how she wishes like ralph would goose her and like <laughs> it, it's it's really hysterical um so she, it turns out that she's the you know the showrunners will talk about how there was no big bad like a Thanos in this, but but she turns out to be the closest thing to that in this mm -hmm. show, right? Um, so she's sort of like a bad witch, but it it's complicated and it's complicated in the the comics too. Like they have in the comics they have a fraught mentor mentee relationship, and that's sort of like what happens mm -hmm. here. So she comes out as as Agatha Harkness, the witch, um, and um who's been kind of trying been manipulating things all along and like she gets her own theme song and her own little credit sequence thing um that went viral right it was agatha all along and uh, so so that's at least two witches right and and even though agatha you know is being mcu and wants all the power and that's her like sin and, and all that she also takes Wanda through this like therapeutic journey. So she becomes a kind of mentee. She becomes sort of like a therapist, like an evil therapist, right? <laughs> um, so what you have is with all of this, it's not just like witchcraft and, and certain feminist tropes, but it also plays out um, according to the, the genre logics of what, what's called uh, maternal melodrama. These so melodrama starts out as I'll try to do this really quickly starts out as this kind of spectacular shocking um really mo morally polarized narrative stage form in the 19th century 
Um, you know, there's there's a good side, an evil side, and they battle it out. And there's usually big effects and explosions and things like this. And then in many ways, the the new Hollywood blockbuster is just an extension of that melodramatic tradition, mm -hmm. right? Um, what happens in like the 30s, 40s, and especially 50s is that a new form of melodrama emerges and it's more coded as feminine or women's film. Sometimes it's called, sometimes it's called weepies. Um, and uh, films like Stella Dallas, um, probably the most well-known is the German-American uh, director uh, who you know, left Nazi Germany and started making, he was also a Marxist Brechtian and then started making these weepies for Universal Studios, um, Douglas Sirk, right? And he makes, films like um, All That Heaven Allows. And basically these are all about women in often like feminized spaces within patriarchy and to different degrees and to different critical degrees of self-consciousness are playing out the injustices and contradictions and tensions and failures of mid-century American patriarchy, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, you know, a lot of important feminist film theorists and historians have written all about this. You know, you can go explore. Linda Williams is an important scholar on this. There's, there's many more. Marianne Doan is another. Um, so it, it's important to realize that this, this kind of genre or mode of the maternal melodrama is always about loss. Yeah. It's always about women, usually women in relationship with women and usually around questions of loss. It's often mother daughter, but it could also be, you know, you know, in a certain sense, Agnes and uh, Agnes and, and uh, Wanda are not like literal, you know, kin mother and daughter, but they, they end up kind of coming into structurally a kind of potentially a, a relationship like mm -hmm. that. Right. Um, so, it's all, this genre is like one way in popular culture, which as we say time and time again, is not univocal, yep. right? Is, is variegated, even if it's problematic often, is acknowledging the traumas of patriarchy, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and it, it's inviting the spectator to explore emotionally, aesthetically, and intellectually those problems of loss. And, and um, you know, sometimes it's like, the sacrifice, a mother sacrificing her relationship with her daughter so her daughter can go off and have a better life in this very zero-sum classist way. Um, uh, it plays out in different ways, but it, 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 um, it's always kind of, I think at bottom, kind of empathetic, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what's happening here too. It's a maternal melodrama. And in fact, it's a kind of save a little bit of a gravitational fall story that we get that, oh, it's the cosmic background tax dollars that are, you know, <laughs> flying apart and it's got to happen. I think the fact that it, it plays out as a maternal melodrama that's actually compounded at multiple levels is interesting and, and really matters, right? Mm -hmm. It's acknowledging that loss. And then I think, you know, there's a lot to say about race, but one thing to say included in the melodrama uh, framing is that um, Monica Rambeau, uh, the African-American um, uh, you know, character who had shown up uh, in the, not, not played by uh, 
uh, what's her name, Tayona Paris, mm -hmm. right? Um, but as a kid in the recent Captain Marvel movie, she's all grown up, and she 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 has her own story here where she's becoming a superhero mm -hmm. and getting superhero powers, and then she's gonna go off and be in the next Captain Marvel movie. And if you read the comics, you know she herself becomes Captain Marvel. So like, there's a kind of racial politics trajectory to her story that didn't not everybody was fully satisfied with you know they they want good representation of black women now and that's fine but so that's happening but that's all routed through maternal melodrama as well she loses her her mother is sick i think she has cancer or something like that before the blip mm -hmm. right and then um i think she might have even gone into surgery her mother um and then and then she goes away from the blip, comes back five years later, and then her, so her mother lost her in the blip, and then she comes back and she's lost her mother. So it's this like, you know, double, <laughs> double time travel loss, mm -hmm. right? And then her loss becomes the source of her empathy to help Wanda, both from the inside and outside. So she becomes part of the sitcom universe, right? Um, and and she's fabulous. I mean, her her performance is incredible too. I mean, it's not all Catherine Hahn. She's she's so good. Um, and so she's she's entangled in this maternal melodrama kind of network with Wanda and with Agatha Harkness too, who herself we see right what, like had. All these problems with her mother and her coven you know back in the salem winch trials and right so yeah that that all makes this like super interesting from a, a kind of a critique of patriarchy point of right view. and and one thing i think also to note right if it when we're talking about mothers and mother-daughter loss and on all of these relationships of familial care and love right? It's important to have the backdrop, like all of these traumas are playing out, right? Are of course being allegorized through this familial race relationship, but we, we can read them not necessarily on their own terms and think about the way love and care can then function, right? If we want to do the sort of economic per, like language from a, at a more macro perspective, right? And that can end up derailing some of these feminizations of those relationships, right? Thinking about the way, you know, that that governance and provisioning it does provide a sort of cushion of care, right? And that we, you know, we can even push harder and, you know, push to arguments like Sophie Lewis and others who, who argue for like a sort of fully social surrogacy as a matter of political economic radicalism, right? There are ways in which these relations don't have to be read on the terms of their immediate contiguous familial structure in order to then open some of these losses and problems to a more generalizable problem of trauma and carelessness, right? And so I, it's important to keep zooming back in and out in that way when we're thinking like theoretically how we're interpreting this film. And um, I, I also think it's important that you mentioned Douglas Sirk because 
the all that heaven allows which is the classic right this sort of classic maternal melodrama i think you know i was taught maternal melodrama with this film um is you know there's also some formal experimentation at the level of color and and other things and in the film and number one and number two the the medium of television is itself played with in that film and as a sort of relationship of mid-century sort of you know patriarchal the patriarchal imagination of femininity you sit in front of the tv you're at home or i you know the man goes off to work right so there's all of these sort of deep tensions in the marvel's move to streaming and and like yeah. right and all of these really interesting relations that are sort of at stake in this sort of potent m- memory of a fraught sort of of fraught potentials and and really stark fraught limits that then come to come to a head in 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 our moment right now via and as the sort of Marvel Cinematic Universe's future and and what what we can how we can think about cultural production going forward and provisioning today for us now in COVID and beyond and so all of these sort of feminist and queer and then of course importantly racial tensions that get played out and critiqued in this film or in this in this series and and you see I'm already I'm already playing the film series like already stuck in the past here um is mm-hmm. it's it's really conjuring a problem right and it's conjuring an important problem that it can't quite ha- have an answer to right at, it, at the yeah, level it of does its logic it can't solve it but it it is new in the way at which it's conjuring this problem reflexively rather than just burying it under the weight of gravity as it did in many of as marvel has done in many many past versions yeah yeah i totally agree and you just to kind of spell it out um is you know i do think that um not only can we read this beyond a familial kinship i i actually think that there's something very self-conscious about that i mean there's there's networks of solidarity in this show that even though it is centered around a whiteness that must break open, right. That must fall apart. Um, you know, we can think about the, the network of difference, right. Mm-hmm. That, that even, even when it's fraught, right. That appears, right. So like we could talk about, you know, uh, Randall Park as Jimmy Woo comes back. Right. Um, and, and, um, there's, you know, there's a number of characters that we can see as being in solidarity with one another for a variety of reasons, often shared pain, right. And, or differentially shared pain. And, you know, like the big mortal bad is the, you know, the, the, just the straight white douchebag who runs sword, right. Who, who's just a, who's just a war monk Mm -hmm. and just wants to control with bombs and surveillance. Right. Um, so yeah, I think very self-consciously it wants this kind of solidarity, whether it's good enough is another question, but I think it is groping toward it. And then, you know, the tragedy is that solidarity can only ever be as good as gravity allows. I mean, that's where they end. All all that gravity allows. 
Yeah, all the gravity allows. And and that's so tragic. Right? That that's horrible, mm-hmm. right? Because essentially we can't afford it. Yep. Right? We can't afford our solidarity, right? But you know, we we who uh you know are in solidarity with uh Sarah Nelson know <laughs> that solidarity is stronger than gravity. That's right. And and so, yeah, there's so many different angles I think we could go at this. I think it might be useful to to think about Monica Rambeau's character, too, in, an, in another way. There's, right, her, her empathy and her shared differential but shared pain, analogous pain to that of Wanda, drives a sort of uh, her, you know, a sort of, identification with the problem of what Wanda's experiencing, right? Wanda is sort of not in the loop. I mean, that's a, that's a sort of important, it's an important way to think about this, right? Wanda doesn't really know what's happening through while it's happening. It's opaque to herself. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, I think this is very important too, that the show begins with a mystery that's opaque to the characters and a, super opaque to the audience, yeah. right? Like, it's fun, but there's trauma, but we don't know why yeah. and what the hell is going on. And it's like, where where did we come from? Mm-hmm. You know, and like, where did we come from as sitcom watchers? Yeah. Where did we come from as racialized or, or gendered um, beings? Yeah, but, but what Monica Rambeau's character, you know, importantly offers here, right? In, in light of sort of Wanda's, being in the dark right uh, like what's happening to me what where am i what what is this world that i that like did i do this like there are all of these questions that are shared with the audience right monica has a real clarity right and has a sort of identification of you can sort of tell monica can see a path and knows what needs to happen right monica needs to get to wanda right and and there needs to be a real clarity established with regards to what is happening, what the what the relations of trauma are, and how we can move forward from them. And and it has to be speech, right? Yeah. It's, it has to be a talking cure. It can't be about powerball. Exactly right. It has to be a talking, like you know, men fight with powerballs, right? But you know, and and but there's and and so there's this there's weird sort of there's this weird unusual. Right. I think that's a really great point. It's an unusual sort of need. Right. It's not it's not a let's coordinate to then fight. It's a it's to 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 stop this from happening and move forward. There needs to be a reckoning of a, a verbal reckoning. Right. A conversation, a, an encounter that um, that can provide clarity as to what need injustices need to cease. Right. Like that that this suburb needs to be left behind in various ways this world this construction needs to be left behind and and of course there are many different ways in which this is limited but i do think having this sort of this sort of causation at the level of knowledge coming from the monica rambo's character is really it's a really interesting way to think about a sort of the 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 way a sort of white feminism 
needs to fall away into an intersectional feminism, right? And 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 this is a very crucially important sort of intervention, right? And literally, like Monica has to intervene and like force her way into this hex, um, and it changes her um, in, into to establish uh, and really end the end the cycle of trauma. Now. That's a that's a, a reading that I would call charitable, right? But that that one that I'm sort of being creative in 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 search, yeah. trying to refract. And I think we can refract something right. more. I think we we can honor the complaints that she ends up being more of a sidekick. Yeah. And I mean, I I understand where they come from, but I will say that I. I would push back on the idea that she's merely a sidekick or she doesn't really matter. And she's just, you know, simply serving Wanda. I, I think it's, I think it's a lot more complicated than that, but I get, I get where that's coming mm-hmm. from. And it, so I, I just want to say it's, it's not the reason why I disagree with that is because it's not just about Wanda, right? It's also about all the people that Wanda has sort of imprisoned with her hex, right? And, and it's about saving them from this unconscious construction as right. And so there's something, there's something important in that too, with regards to solidarity and, and for, for others who are suffering. Absolutely. And I think we can push all the way through the looking glass. And I, I think this would be a, you know, what we in humanities call reading against the grain mm-hmm. move. Um, but you could, read certain impulses in the show in the construction of the cosmic background radiation and this in the sitcom as a as a symptom as a as a defense formation right um as a violent one as an exclusionary one you could you could read this as mcu in some way admitting that that's what hyper Newtonian MCU aesthetics themselves yeah. are, which is essentially what my argument about <laughs> about those aesthetics yeah. are, right? Like they are they are reactionary defense formations that are trying to articulate articulate a world that is going to feel comforting in some way, but that but that do so on z- totally violent zero sum terms, right? So. To have somebody kind of overtly sick with hyper-Newtonian symptoms, right, um, suggests <laughs> that there's something being admitted here. Now, I think ultimately the fact that we don't really end in the magic of mediation, but in the disintegrated, atomized, you know, I mean, you could say it goes two ways. Like on the one hand, you end up with Wanda in the woods because it's MCU and some alienated Avenger has to end up in the woods by themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Monica who goes into a movie theater and is like, wink, wink, everybody should go back to the movies after COVID and like look up and look up at the screen and look up at the at the universe and there's all this potential. But I still think it, it ends us with hyper-Newtonianism as being the baseline, yeah. but there's still, I think, a reading that allows us to really see how the trauma hyper Newtonian form is itself a, 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 a symptom. Absolutely. And I think before we get into this sort of 
I think guiding thematic takeaways that really open up like that that continue that reading I, I wanted to just take a second to talk about the children um, in in this in this hex universe right Wanda envisions children in the in the sort of bizarre narrative arc of their <laughs> their creation their their yeah. growth and their ultimate demise in a sort of bizarre way right and so um throughout the sort of the years of the sitcom as it moves through the decades right um there are all these weird time distortions that happen um including like wanda gets pregnant and then um in a single episode she goes from being like four months pregnant to nine, to months, nine pregnant months pregnant to, to having giving birth to giving birth and giving birth to twins right so so yeah. there's this recreation of her life and past traumas and and Monica plays a an important sort of crucial role at the node of the giving birth right actually facilitates like and 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 walks and helps Wanda give birth to the children um only to 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 be cast out afterwards and then she has to come back but um and she gives birth instead of the super sexist mid-century doctor right right who's condescending and um yeah it's just awful yes exactly and so there's there's something there's something in that encounter that's really important too but throughout the throughout the the show and my sense of what the children were was it, it was sort of the children were almost props to me right it felt that way right in the sense that oh yeah, yeah right yeah. they they of course played important roles in the sitcom and like, you know, the important sort of plot cruxes and, and all of these, you know, things that children do, but this, they were there for the sake of the, the form. And, and there Mm -hmm. wasn't sort of some motivating factor with regards to the, the whole narrative. And, and so they grow in weird ways, you know, throughout the, and they do it by sort of by themselves throughout the time. And, you know, sometimes they're small and then all of a sudden they're, you know, 12 and there are all of these. Right. Which is playing, which is playing with, you know, I mean, episodic television mm-hmm. that has children. And, you know, I, I myself was on some of these kinds You're of shows. You're one of the children. Um, I was one of the children. Um, you know, you, I mean, I, I never had a, you know, regular, I wasn't a star of a show, but like the, you know, kids who are on shows like you shoot for a few months and you go away and you come back the next year and suddenly your voice is dropped yep. and you're you've got stubble and you know like so then it's a question do we replace you with somebody cuter do we you know do we just explain away how how much you've grown up now yeah. right oh, so timmy's gotten really big part, you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> right right and so they like very playfully point out you know that that's also part of sitcom mediation and and how you know these shows go on for years and when they're we're representing a family you know yeah kids grow up but you're not shooting the whole right. time it's movie magic right and so you know yeah. television magic yeah. and um and so that gets thematized and really they become a sort of again like a sort of abstract sort of medium and prop throughout the throughout the whole show and um and they help process the loss and mediate the loss. And ultimately at the end, when Wanda realizes become the right, loss. when Wanda realizes <laughs> she has to give up the hex and this projection, 
of you know for for the real world um the children have to go away too and they just sort of go away or cease to exist would some might say die out of frame um and they're born out of frame and they that's die right out of frame. well th- this is where i'm leading right and so that's an important part because you know on top of the like giving up on the two and a half children patriarchal vision of like what valid existence is meant to be for families and for women as as well um the this this movement sort of i think unveils some of the the two themes that i think we wrote down in our notes that that we that really the like there's something guiding about the show with regards to these themes and and the two are right and and refracted through the children which scott just mentioned the the out of frame and um the and creation and so you know we began this conversation with a a sort of joke reading of a tweet about seinfeld and how um you know the the spatial topography doesn't work because because the kitchen and, and the hallway and and but you never see one another so i guess that's how they did it but this sort of confusion that you know i could imagine descartes looking at the world just being confused um as to how this works but the answer right is it's the the production of this media world is coming from out of frame and that's the that's the apophatic right that's the it's not it's yep. that's what is not that's what's conjuring and what can be conjured and reconjured through mediation and remediation and and that's money. and that's right and that's money and that's the provisioning capacity of money as mediation which of course as we know as we've talked about before right the windfall of the marvel and disney there's so much money that's just being you know I, I don't want to say, say I'm not going to say pumped or piped or poured, <laughs> but that's being extended to uh-huh. these projects, whether in the form of bank loans or in the form of all different types of public infrastructure and and active tax breaks. Yeah, right. Tax breaks and active uh, active production. I mean, a great example is I, I just finished Falcon and Winter Soldier. And at the end, it's just like, you know, the Georgia peach. Here's a bunch of tax breaks. Yeah. Right? This was filmed in Georgia. This was shot in Georgia yeah. too. So it makes perfect sense, right? And so there's there's all this support that that's going into these shows that are not in frame, right? They're not immediately in the frame. And that this is a, a way of thinking about money and public provisioning of, of all activities, right? Of, you know of this recording this podcast and everything that goes into that and you know we could go on and on up through the nested structure of micro to mezzo to macro and and this out of frame is exactly what the sitcom is always and was always allegorizing right whether it's the mid-century patriarchy and its tensions or Later on, the sort of, as you said, with with family ties, the forces of of discontent and disruption that that neoliberalism brought with it. Right. And and we could go on and on and on. And so there there are a lot of ways to think about this creative capacity of the out of frame. And I I think I want to hand it over to you to see if we can think specifically about some of them. Yeah, so I guess what I would say is 
one of the ways of articulating our critique of the blockbuster hyper-Newtonian aesthetics in the MCU as it typically plays out is that <clears throat> the out-of-frame is, you could say abstraction is repressed and with it, the out-of-frame is repressed and, and repressed as a kind of open question and an open construction. So, you know, filmmakers have known this from er the early days of beginning to, well, you know, frame and frame, <laughs> you know, frame the world, right? I mean, you could say this is in photography, this is a problem of painting, right? But in cinematography, framing, but then also editing, mm -hmm. right? So when we, after about a decade of cinema, we start seeing, you know, a construction of space and time that is not only just pointing a camera at, at things or people or rivers or whatever, and then displaying it or telling a story, but is, but is um, conjuring a sense of what lies beyond the frame. And it can do so in all kinds of ways. You can do so through sound, you can do so through implication, you could do so through, you know, uh, what's called an eyeline match, right? Uh, a character looks off frame, kind of above the camera or to the right, um, and then you could cut again and then see a shot uh, that is what they were looking mm -hmm. at, right? So what, what hyper-Newtonian aesthetics tend to do to the out-of-frame is essentially like a temporal version of what Renaissance painting did to the out-of-frame. Think about, you know, Rena Renaissance painting is a contiguous space that's organized by material forces and above all gravity and there is an infinite vanishing point or more that recedes on the horizon, which tells you what? It tells you that the logic of the space that you are, you are visiting, you are seeing, you are inhabiting in this painting will continue on in the same way forever. It is univocal, mm -hmm. right? It will not change, right? No one's gonna snap a finger and suddenly plates are putting themselves back together again by going reverse. Suddenly right? there's a it's hallway always... where there should have been a kitchen. Yeah, right. None of that's happening, right? It's univocal forces and gravity and you know what eventually we start calling Cartesian space, mm -hmm. right? And what hyper-Newtonian MCU aesthetics do is they say everything off frame is going to be hyper-Newtonian physics, no matter what. It's, it's always there. And in fact, they remind you all the time. One of the tropes of the MCU, and especially the Avengers films where they assemble, is you'll be on a relatively tight shot of, of a character or maybe a couple characters. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, another character might be a good guy, might be a bad guy, might be somebody trying to come to save somebody. It might be somebody coming to punch somebody. It might be played for terror and horror. It might be played for lasts. But all of a sudden, some figure, some character will just rush in from the side, from the out of frame with so much more force than you could have ever been prepared for as a spectator, which is always reminding you to be on your toes as a spectator, that there are wild univocal forces all around this universe that could attack and invade the frame at any time, right? So the out of frame is- It's like a, it's, it's like a Hobbesian is, state of nature. It is, absolutely. And so even though the out of frame is a constant construction, they are constantly constructing it to make it seem like, no, it's homogenous everywhere. Yeah. Like it's different in the sense that there's 
more or less, you know, forces or people making decisions or creatures, you know, destroying buildings, but it's essentially all going to be some version of that, right? But what WandaVision does, as we've been suggesting, is it really leans into that weird Seinfeld, <laughs> you know, like impossible media space, which is not, I would not say is a break from reality. What I would say is that actually our forms of media, our forms of language, our money, our, our social cultural relationships are always constructed in these complicated ways that are overlapping and nested and do not behave and are, and are maybe even paradoxical and do not behave according to, you know, any kind of straightforward contiguous physics, mm -hmm. right? So I would say that there's something in a weird way, like more real <laughs> about leaning into that kind of surreal form of mediation. And I also think it's interesting, as you pointed out, that creation in the form of making a baby, right, and death, right, are both deliberately, according to tropes, right, but are deliberately figured as part of the out of frame. And it's suggesting to us that the out of frame can be this mysterious site of potential that we're dependent on, that's, that's, that's heterogeneous to what we know in the here and now, rather than a univocal hostile projection of Hobbesian forces that go for infinity right. in, 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 in and through an infinity war. <laughs> and, and so it's this peeling back towards a meta layer, right? That the show is doing, right? First of all, the show is a show within a show. Right. And that's actively thematized. And the, the viewer, there are viewers in the show who are watching the show just just as entranced in the show of WandaVision, the sitcom, as we are at home watching WandaVision, the Marvel streaming show. Right. And right. And precisely not as material immersion, but as a media a media immersion exactly. not a material right immersion. they're yeah. they're they're adjusting the antennas on their little their old tvs right and and so there's this peeling back of the layer to the meta that because and i think this is in part because the show is preoccupied with trauma and loss right and there's this psychological register that is there's a there's a a sort of de-escalation of the sort of repression and the tension of the out of, like that's associated with the out of frame right so and as you suggested in typical mcu it's there's a full repression of the out of frame into a bounded cartesian spatialized world but in wandavision there's a you 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 peel back and you dilate the frame right so the out of frame becomes a part of the frame and so this sort of unveiling of some of the creative capacities and production contexts of the multiple layers of WandaVision as a show within the show is a way of sort of revealing and, and, and opening up the question of the heterogeneous forms of mediation and creation to a critical context with the sh which the show is entirely, I, I would suggest, it, it, the moral thrust of it is is dedicated to that critical context, whether it's patriarchy, 
whether it's racism. And then also importantly, a sort of a humming through line is also a, a sort of incipient queerness associated with whether it's the, yeah. it's the Agnes character or or the the sort of as you said the campy aesthetics there in the in the the witch thematics there's a sort of there's a, a sort of incipient and and queerness that you know as you've told me and and sort of told me about like the bewitched sitcom has this sort of historical association with queerness and and there's there's there are themes being drawn from that sitcom as well and and so all of this critical layer in addition to the meta framing allows for it on our reading right and i think it's important to put this in in clear terms a politicization of the production of form of media as mediation in both aesthetic cultural and monetary contexts because it's all of those things and it's of course and 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 all of those things go into producing not just our reality but also these very particular realities which we are um which we are participating in a conversation about and participating in 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 viewing and and are a part of the sort of aesthetic fabric of of our culture right and so drawing to this meta layer and allows us to 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 really question and and question the logics of the production aesthetics that the mcu itself insists on even in this at the end even in this this uh in this series and so there's a scene that I think uh, I'd love to hear you talk about more that that's sort of like the big reveal on this out of frame meta frame sort of question in, in the penultimate episode uh, and per- feel free to, to diverge from my suggestion first, but I'd love to hear you talk about it. Yeah. I mean, I would love to talk about bewitched. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, maybe we're going pretty long. Maybe, Maybe let's talk about let's talk let's talk about the previously on, which is the name of the penultimate yeah. episode. Um, so it's pretty hard to just talk about. I know the moment you have in mind. It's pretty hard to talk about it in isolation because, in so many ways, it's been built up to like the. There's been a thematization about the out of frame throughout the show, and it's not just about you know harps, you know, doing kind of sitcom but but originally like vaudeville off-screen sound effects that are not so-called realist but are you know animating animating the world in ways that are abstract right but it's also it's thematized even in the dialogue and the narrative i mean the, the second episode um they're lying in bed in their you know they each they're each in their own little single bed or double bed or whatever they're called right they're sleeping separately and there's like knocks at the window, right? And then they get scared and, and there's jokes about it. And um, then it turns out, oh, it, it, at the end of the day, it was just, um, you know, like a tree branch bumping up against the window, right? Um, and then, you know, then later on, I think in that episode, this strange person who seems like a beekeeper pops up from underneath um you know like from a manhole uh right on the street 
Um, and then, and then Wanda basically edits that out yep. <laughs> and then they go back to a nice, happy sitcom ending where they kiss on the sofa or whatever. And, um, I think that's actually when they, they go to color, mm-hmm. right. Um, with a little bit of like queer nod to wizard of Oz there. And, uh, so like the, the off scene is like a site, a site of play of queer play of terror of unknowingness um but not not necessarily reducible to hyper newtonian right and then the audience like the audience is part of that too right and it's like they shot with a live audience in georgia for the first two episodes but they also have a laugh track that they created in historically specific ways consulting some laugh track expert for Mm. you know you know how did people laugh in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s um so that's part of the construction out of, of the out of frame too, right? And um, so, so then the question of the audience and where is the audience? Well, the audience is, you know, this show was shot before a live studio audience and we're used to that saying and that trope and we sort of imagine that there's one there, but also it's us at home and that kind of abstract relationship and how that's mediated maybe in a crappy way, but, but by the laugh yeah. track, right? Um, but here is experience in, as a kind of mediating layer, right? In an ironic, interesting, fun way. So the audience becomes a major figure for, uh, a figure for the out of frame. It's not the only part of the out of frame, but the audience is like, it, it, it's important, right? Um, and then in that previously on episode, it's crazy to me because like on the one hand, I I think once I realized that this was going to collapse inevitably according to the laws of capital and the universe into MCU hyper-Newtonian territory, I think I didn't fully appreciate, like I gave the, the inevitability too much inevitability. And I think it becomes inevitable in the last episode. But I think that that penultimate episode is so like interesting and it's not, it's not abstract in the same way that the earlier sitcom abstractions were working, but it, it, it becomes abstract in a more, in a way that's more like a kind of experimental independent cinema or as historically speaking kind of comes out of the tradition of what's called art, art cinema. Um, where precisely, you know, space and time does not ever perfectly add up and, and it's paradoxical and, and that has real meaning and, and the ambiguity of space and time is, is as meaningful as, as, as resolving some of those paradoxes or those contradictions or tensions, right? And this happens again and again. So like in that, in that penultimate episode, it's sort of like a, so it's that therapy session that we were mm-hmm. talking about where Agnes is taking um, Wanda back to her life and all her, all her traumas. And it's a little bit like it's a wonderful life, right? <laughs> or, or you know, these other films where like you get a, or like, uh, you know, Scrooge or whatever, like you, you get a guide that takes the character who's fallen back through their life um, uh to you know to explore and learn and grow right so there's some of that except here it's not it's not an angelic figure it's somebody who wants to exploit her for her Mm -hmm. power right um so she's like giving her forced therapy for that but the way that therapy works is 
it's a little strange. It's not MCU, right? Like the different scenes of her life are like, are, are they travel to them by opening up doors in a, in a space in a contiguous way. So this is like, I mean, this is what a surrealist film would do, right? It's like you, you open a door from one space to the other and they're not actually contiguous. Like it's figured as contiguous, but the spaces themselves are so far apart and in time too, right? So they open a door and suddenly they're in Sokovia and, you know, stepping into the family scene of happiness and watching the, the sitcoms on DVD um, with the family and then you have to experience the trauma, right? So weirdly, contiguity ends up creating an abstract experience. So that's really defamiliarizing yep. in interesting ways. And then it ends up, maybe you can help me describe the, the moment that you were mm -hmm. teeing up, but like it ends up back on the original 1950s sitcom mm -hmm. set, right? Where we start, right? And um, Vision and Wanda are there in black and white. And then we reveal, as often happens in this sequence, that that Wanda and Agatha are behind mm -hmm. them or, or in that scene too, watching, yeah. right? As like ghosts or whatever they are. Then Wanda and Vision disappear. And then we get this kind of shot that we've been describing as Fellini-esque, right? Like uh, very much in the mode of Federico Fellini, um, this Italian art cinema filmmaker, well-known for films like La Dolce Vita and uh, Eight and a Half. He loved these like dizzying panning shots, not like, you know, like Transformer movies panning shots, but like, but like slow, but kind of dizzying. And like, there's no sense of establishing the space and time in a very clear way, right? we get this shot of like all of these production lights, but we don't even know where they are. We don't know where they are in relationship to, we've never seen them before, mm -hmm. right? Then we get a shot of Wanda kind of moving her eyes in the same pattern as the pattern that we've been looking in. So then it becomes what's called an eyeline match, which I've mentioned before. So it's kind of like Wanda's looking up at these, these lights. Then the we cut back again, or the camera starts moving again in a Fellini-esque way and it ends up kind of turning around and slowly revealing that you're on a soundstage and you see the audience, the bleachers, but there's no audience except Agatha who's sitting, being sadistic. Clapping. And saying sadistic. Yeah. And clapping, yeah, yeah as an yeah. audience yeah. member. And she herself had been revealed in the episode before that when they were doing all the confessionals in the like, uh, you know, the office style, right? She was revealed as being behind the camera that yep. whole time, behind in those confessionals. So Agatha's associated with the out of frame now, with the unknown and the mysterious, the audience too. And now suddenly we're given the contiguous space that we've never seen before of the of the audience, right? But, but they're missing. Mm -hmm. And that seems like it needs reading. And maybe I'll mm -hmm. let you do that. And then, and then what is even crazier is so, um, I think there's another snap, right? I think Agatha snaps, disappears. Basically, she's got her kids, to, you know, like choking them outside. And then Wanda runs out of the studio, runs out of the studio door, right? Like not on the soundstage, not on the set of the family house. And where does she leave? Where, where do we see her on the other side in what's called a graphic match cut or a match on action? 
she's coming out of Agatha's house. So we were just on, we were just in so-called Wanda's house, but she comes out impossibly like that Seinfeld thing, but on, you know, like on speed, <laughs> <laughs> this impossible space, like it was her house, but it's a set, but now we're in, she, it turns out she, you know, we were in Agatha's house and then Agatha's house is revealed to be the actual house that we was used on Bewitched <laughs> on the back lot. Um, so like, yeah, so much, so many on. layers. I want to, I yeah. want to focus on the audience part. Cause I think this is the crux of like, really like we've gone through all of these sort of readings of the way WandaVision conjures a problem and conjures questions about the out of frame and creation and provisioning and intersectional sort of movements and feminism like today and the way wokeness is interacting with our time and cultural form and aesthetics. But I think if you, for me, if you had to locate the one moment where the film, you know, that I would want to emphasize as the moment that I think the film has the most to teach us with regards to its, its tepid attempt to answer its conjured problem, which we've teased out is in this moment of sort of the empty seats of the, of the studio audience and the audience is gone, right? Like the sitcom audience, they're gone. Like we don't, we can recreate it. We can do all of these things, but that moment has passed, right? And, and they've disappeared on the laugh right. track. Like once you get into, I think, I don't know when it is, but I think that single camera mode, like the modern family mode yep. and all that, the laugh track exactly. is gone. So it's it's gone from the show. And, and, you know, we're in a different aesthetic moment. It, you know, we could say it as, as far as reliving or re-experiencing that history, it, that was, that was a loss that, that, that it was, was necessitated by the change in the aesthetics as it moved through the influences variously of, of the sitcoms. But there is also a sense for me of looking to those seats and, you know, Agatha clapping, right? Which is at once is like, look, it's me. I'm your audience. I was, I was here the whole time, right? None of it was ever real. There's that sort of more simplified reading. But I think what's really interesting about that reveal of the out of frame, and this is a sort of now meta frame of a soundstage in the show, is that the empty seats, there's something it the show... I think wants about like it wants those seats to be filled. They're still there. The audience is still there. And we can think about COVID and empty seats in movie theaters. We can think about all different ways in which the community of the participation in the production of a sitcom, all of these and, and the identification, the abstract relationship of the viewer at home laughing along with the laugh track. There's a sort of, almost deferred longing for the past, but as a sort of present of, of a way of filling those seats, of, of reckoning with audience and, and a, a sort of collective totality of the experience of, of watching. And it matters that it, it happens at a moment of paradoxical yes, space. Exactly. Right? It, it, it's exactly. It's at the moment when mediation cannot be reduced to the material here and now 
univocally projected onto a Hobbesian exactly. <laughs> it matters that it yeah. matters specifically that spatial formation because as we've dem- as we demonstrated it as I tried to tease out in our Marx was right episode about the negative or apophatic m- method, right? The seats themselves in the empty spaces of of the the lack, it conjures something, right? It it conjures something there, and in this case, it's both a historical memory of laugh tracks and studio audiences, but also I think it also conjures today, watching it now through this sort of looking glass recreation, memory, nostalgia, loss, trauma, present, future paradox that WandaVision represents, the potential for thinking about the way people can have a a role in the production of not just, you know, not just in the very narrow sense of as a studio audience in cultural productions, but in the out of frame. And the need for people in the out of frame and, and those seats to be filled with a diverse array of perspectives and, and different inclusive audiences and, and you know, I mean, and identities. And, right, and this is how we might think about the sort of wokeness of of the MCU today alongside its allegorization of mediation aesthetics as a sort of monetary politics of of really you know we use things like seat at the table as a metaphor or you know but there's a way of of an almost like a a fallen or or not yet democratization right of of some sort of process of representation that can allow for an inclusive register of this sort of mediation and play right so an inclusive an inclusive provisioning an inclusive abundance rather than a a a white patriarchal mid-century abundance that is that is predicated on the violence right that that's whose abstract cushions and and remediations are predicated on the violence of the mid-century exclusion of people of color and of women as well and so that's the for me that's the crux of like this moment of destabilization defamiliarization what's happening where have they gone what do we do now Right. And that that there's there's a lot of uh, multi-directional, uh, not contiguously spatialized historical temporal questions that are that are at stake in in that moment that I think, you know, it's weird to say it gives me hope. But I think when a cultural forum, a mass media popular forum is able to ask those questions, it forces it forces me at least as a as a sort of analytical actor um, to to ask them as well and to ask perhaps how you know why this, something like this can is open now in a way that it wasn't before and and that and that I think is is where I you know would like to leave thinking about Wandavision for now. Yeah, I I totally agree. I I just I do want to reiterate for all the praise we heap on this in addition to the critiques. It really is 
it's a it's about the fact that this is a mass <laughs> this is a massive production at the heart of corporate mm -hmm. production right so yeah the, no one no one mistake us for saying this is the revolution no. or you know no no, no. It, it's precise you know there's plenty of more interesting woke participatory fabulously abstract art mm -hmm. and culture out there that right we're interested in taking the pulse of of the big corporate apparatus that we we want to critique we'd like to dismantle we'd like to you know crowd out with public mm -hmm. provisioning right so like you know we're very 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 critical but at the same time we're also not we also don't see the corporate multinational corporate media production as univocal mm -hmm. right and it's doing all kinds of crazy things all the time right and and sometimes it's highly highly problematic sometimes it's less sometimes it's interesting and exciting and wandavision seems to be pretty interesting and exciting maybe the way i'll put a cherry on top of uh, of this and what you just said is it, it what you were talking about kind of reminds me of something that Paul Bettamy said, who plays Vision um, in an interview. And somebody asked him, what was your favorite scene or scene to shoot or something like that? And he didn't actually answer the question uh, because he didn't talk about a scene. He said, my favorite part was when we wrapped the shoot. And by the way, they had started shooting in early 2020 and then covid made them shut down then they came back in the fall of 2020 and had rigorous protocols as other shows have um and were able to shoot and complete the project and do post-production and release it without anybody getting sick right because they had the 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 care and the money and the investment and the the you know the wherewithal to create a situation to orchestrate this production and he said you know my favorite part of making this was when we wrapped and we realized that we had did done it you know we had like we had finished this whole thing without anybody getting sick because and i think he says something like this because everybody you know followed the rules right and like what a better way of acknowledging that, you know, it's abstract mediation and coordination at a distance, including money, but also aesthetics that, that gets us through, right? Law. <laughs> that maintains us. And that, yeah, right. Law, rules, right? Not univocal law, but rules that shift with different urgencies and different time periods, right? So I found that to be really poignant and, you know, showing us, kind of at, at this extra textual level um, what some of the potentialities or the potencies of the kind of queer magic of this show um, brings to the floor. Money is queer after all. Money is queer after all.
Shallow work is the work we do And shallow work breeds nothing
sweaty hands and skin slimy soles. From a flusterous prize to flutter just in prose. Further anticipation is this chaotic wonder. So hold your tongue on these pillows. Hide your headstrong boy. Hide your.